The kidney has a very special place in the heart. It's an incredible thing. Oh, yes, from Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California, on KFOI in Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, in New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you got me, Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show. That's based at nicolesandler.com and, of course, heard on the Progressive Voices Network and some of those under other wonderful Internet stations that I just rambled off. Um, Brad and Desi taking the day off, and so you got me in their stead, hopefully... Um, will hold down the fort acceptably for you. It's a busy day today, but when is the last time it wasn't a busy day? Oh, my goodness. Um, I got an email earlier today from the Mike Gravel campaign. Yes, Mike Gravel is running for president. He is one of the 25 candidates um, who is running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. Now, Mike Gravel didn't make it to the debate stage for the first debate in Miami last month. But the campaign email that I received today says he is on target to uh, make the second debate that happens on July 30th and 31st from Detroit on CNN. So all they need are another 7,000 individual donations, and they believe they're on target to make it for the second debate. So uh, what I thought I would do today is share a conversation I had with Senator Mike Gravel a couple of months ago, right after he officially jumped into the race. It's a fascinating story, so I hope you'll stick around and listen and hear why I think Mike Gravel deserves to be on that debate stage. But as we tend to do on my show, at the Nicole Sandler Show, we start things off with a look at the news of the day. I read the news today, oh boy. So I'll do my best to update you on what's happened today. It was a busy day at <laughs> that. Uh, we'll start with... Donald Trump. Sorry, but, you know, we have to. Donald Trump was expected to speak this afternoon and announced that he'd use executive action to include a citizenship question on the 2020 census, directly contradicting a Supreme Court decision. At 2 o'clock Eastern this afternoon, though, ABC News reported that instead, Trump would announce that he is backing down from his efforts to include that citizenship question on the census and will instead take executive action that instructs the Commerce Department to survey the American public on the question through other means. Hmm. Roy Cohn, oh, I'm sorry, Attorney General William Barr now has to determine a path forward for three separate ongoing court cases the administration is fighting in Maryland, California, and New York over the administration's efforts to add the question to the census. The Department of Justice declined to comment to ABC News on their report. And we now have an update. Donald Trump began speaking in the Rose Garden at about 5.30 Eastern Time, and started off with this bit of idiocy. 
There used to be a time when you could proudly declare, I am a citizen of the United States. Huh? Now they're trying to erase the very existence of a very important word. What? And a very important thing, citizenship. Oi. They're even coming after the Pledge of Allegiance in Minnesota. <laughs> I'm proud to be a citizen. You're proud to be a citizen. Oi. The only people who are not proud to be citizens are the ones who are fighting us all the way about the word citizen. It has nothing to do with the word citizen. I should just cut him off right there. As you can tell, the level of the lies being spouted. Not that I need to say it, but dump again. You just don't understand. The census is charged in Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution with counting all persons, every 10 years. Those raw numbers are important as the government uses them to allocate resources for everything, from roads to schools, which are used by citizens and non-citizens alike. Unfortunately, there was more. Today I will be issuing an executive order to put this very plan into effect immediately. I am hereby ordering every department and agency in the federal government to provide the Department of Commerce with all requested records regarding the number of citizens and non-citizens in our country. They must furnish all legally accessible records in their possession immediately. We will utilize these vast federal databases to gain a full, complete, and accurate count of the non-citizen population, including databases maintained by the Department of Homeland Security and the Social Security Administration. We have great knowledge in many of our agencies. We will leave no stone unturned. You know, the thing is, what he's saying, what they're ultimately doing, is what was suggested to Wilbur Ross earlier, but he said no. Ian Milheiser of Think Progress tweeted, quote, I think Trump is caving. Using records is what census officials said he should do instead of the citizenship question. Then he continued, but I'm not ready to say that based on Trump's incoherent description of what's happening. Well, that's understandable. Then Trump got to what's really behind this move. This information is also relevant to administering our elections. Some states may want to draw state and local legislative districts based upon the voter-eligible population. Aha! Yes, Mother Jones' Ari Berman tweeted that sentence with the comment, there you have it. The goal of the citizenship question all along was to draw districts to shift power to white Republican areas. Apparently, Bill Barr also suggested that states can exclude non-citizens from congressional apportionment, Berman commenting that that would be a huge power shift to the GOP. This isn't over yet. Stay tuned. In other news, embattled Labor Secretary Alex Acosta held a press conference Wednesday to defend his role in the Jeffrey Epstein sexual abuse scandal. Acosta, who at the time served as the U.S. attorney in South Florida, said that his office intervened in the case after state prosecutors failed to secure a plea deal that would have resulted in jail time for Epstein and give justice to his victims. Quote, I wanted to help them. That's why we intervened. And that's what the prosecutors in my office did. They insisted that he go to jail and put the world on notice that he was and is a sexual predator. That was Alex Acosta saying something that didn't seem to resemble what actually happened. Anyway, despite his defense of his actions, Acosta would not say whether he'd give Epstein the same deal today. He also refused to apologize to the victims. Now, former Florida state attorney Barry Krischer at the time all this happened, blasted Acosta following the press conference, calling his recollection completely wrong. Krischer said in a statement, quote, if Mr. Acosta was truly concerned with the state's case and felt he had to rescue the matter, he would have moved forward with the 53-page indictment that his own office drafted. Instead, Mr. Acosta brokered a secret plea deal that resulted in a non-prosecution agreement in violation of the Crime Victims' Rights Act. Mr. Acosta should not be allowed to rewrite history, end quote. And we agree. All right. Well, I hate to be the one to break this news. Donald Trump has threatened to do it before, and now it looks like it's on again. 
Nationwide raids to arrest thousands of members of undocumented families have been scheduled to begin Sunday. The raids, which will be conducted by ICE over multiple days, will include, quote, collateral deportations, according to officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity. In those deportations, the authorities might detain immigrants who happen to be on the scene, even though they were not the targets of the original raids. Wow. NBC's Julia Ainsley has more. What we can expect is early morning dawn hours on Sunday for some families, some immigrant families, to get knocks on their door from immigration agents. And they would be arrested and then they're detained here in the United States until the proper paperwork can get processed and then they're sent back. That sounds like a smooth system. It's not smooth at all. A lot of these families could be torn apart if they have U.S. citizen children or they're married to a green card holder or a citizen. Also, it's not clear that we have the space for them. We talked about this when the when the operations were called off a couple weeks ago it's not clear that there's much more space for these immigrants now so the question is where do they hold them are the new york times has reported about hotel rooms as temporary spaces mm. i understand customs and border protection could have to provide some space and let's not forget those are the same stations we've been talking about with the terrible condition senate democrats are now set to introduce the stop cruelty to migrant children act tomorrow it's a major new proposal that would make family separations illegal, invest much more in legal support for asylum seekers, and beef up humanitarian standards for the treatment of families and children. The proposal spearheaded by Senators Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York and co-sponsored by three dozen Democratic senators, including those running for president. Well, there's disorder in the House. Yeah, it's a clash of ideas and ideals and generations and maybe more in the House Democratic Caucus. Nancy Pelosi versus Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, also known as The Squad. In a closed-door caucus meeting on Wednesday, Pelosi reportedly scolded the freshmen over online trash-talking, saying, quote, So again, you got a complaint? You come and talk to me about it. But do not tweet about our members and expect us to think that that is just okay. In an interview with The New Yorker published Wednesday, AOC said she has no relationship with Pelosi. The two women haven't spoken since a conversation about committee assignments in the winter. AOC complained that the Democratic leadership has consolidated, quote, an insane amount of power in a handful of people. And then speaking with The Washington Post, she said, when these comments first started, I kind of thought she was keeping the progressive flank more at more of an arm's distance in order to protect more moderate members, which I understood. But the persistent singling out, it got to a point where it was just outright disrespectful. The explicit singling out of newly elected women of color. Stay tuned. The House Judiciary Committee today authorized subpoenas for 12 crucial witnesses as part of the House Democrats' ongoing investigations targeting Donald Trump. The subpoena list includes Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, in addition to some of Mueller's key witnesses, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter. The committee also approved subpoenas for documents and testimony from administration officials related to the zero-tolerance policy at the southern border. You might think that a bridge needs guarding at the White House, judging by the number of trolls expected there today. Donald Trump invited some of the Internet's trolliest to an event they're calling a social media summit. Although the list of attendees wasn't made public, invitations were extended to Jim Hoft, the publisher of the despicable right-wing site Gateway Pundit, to Bill Mitchell, a radio host who's promoted the QAnon conspiracy theory on Twitter, Carpe Dunctum, an anonymous troll who apparently won a contest put on by InfoWars for an anti-media meme. Oy. Uh, Ali Alexander, an activist who attempted to smear Kamala Harris by saying she is not an, a, a, quote, American black, following the first Democratic debate, and that well-known twerp, James O'Keefe, you know, the guy who um, deceptively edits videos to frame Democrats. You know, he attempted to take down Planned Parenthood and actually did take down Acorn with one of these videos. That's who Trump invited to this thing at which he apparently bitched and moaned that he doesn't have as many Twitter followers as he should and accused social media companies of terrible bias. 
New Orleans is flooding, and a brewing storm could bring severe damage this weekend. Hours of intense rain soaked the city, flooding streets and shuttering downtown stores. Meanwhile, New Orleans is bracing for more damage. Weather experts warn a potential tropical cyclone could strengthen into a hurricane just in time to slam into the coast. And finally, thousands of screaming fans celebrated the U.S. women's soccer team in New York yesterday. The team returned from France after a historic World Cup win to massive celebrations. The team used their victory parade as a platform to fight for equal pay. And that's the gist of what's gone on today. All right. I mentioned that we have a conversation with Senator Mike Ravel coming up. The Mike Ravel campaign is, as I mentioned earlier, just about 7,000 donations away from qualifying for the second of the Democratic debates. That didn't stop the campaign from airing an ad today on MSNBC's Deadline White House at the 4 p.m. Eastern hour. And it's notable for being the first attack ad against Joe Biden. Here's what it sounded like. I'm the most progressive record of anybody running. Mr. President, I will vote to authorize the use of military force against Iraq. I do not believe this is a rush to war. I believe it's a march to peace and security. I do not view abortion as a choice or a right. I do not vote for funding for abortion. The concept of busing, that we are going to integrate people, is a rejection of the whole movement of black pride. Both political parties will understand the need for more police officers, or more prisons. We have predators on our streets. We have no choice but to take them out of society. I don't think 500 billionaires are the reason why we're in trouble. The folks at the top aren't bad guys. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. I'm Mike Gravel, and I approve this message. All righty then. Well, we'll take a time out and come back on the other side with my conversation with Senator Mike Gravel, candidate for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. I am Nicole Sandler, happy to be filling in for Brad Friedman on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi. I just received an email from the Mike Gravel campaign. Yes, Senator Mike Gravel is one of the 25 declared candidates for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Although he didn't meet the threshold to be included in the first debate, today's email says, quote, Following a strong week of fundraising, Mike Ravel will likely meet the donor requirements for the July Democratic presidential debate by the end of Friday, July 12th. The campaign needs fewer than 7,000 additional unique donors to meet the Democratic Party's presidential debate requirements. And then it goes on to say, we fully expect to reach those requirements and look forward to making a forceful case against the American empire on the debate stage in Detroit. So who is Mike Ravel? Well, he was a U.S. senator from Alaska from 1969 to 1981. He ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2008. And yes, he is running again in 2020. Shortly after Senator Gravel jumped in the race and I read about his truly unorthodox campaign, I invited him on my show. 
As he might actually be qualified for the debate stage in Detroit at the end of the month, I wanted to share some of our conversation because his is an amazing story. The interview began when I asked Senator Mike Ravel whatever possessed him to run again. It was because David and Henry and Ben persuaded me that the top priority of the campaign would be uh, creation of a legislature of the people and then several other key issues. But since I've devoted the last 25 years of my life to uh, teeing up this legislation, a constitutional amendment and a federal statute to empower people to make laws, uh, that's what floats my boat. And when they said that that's what they were for on a priority basis, that's what persuaded me. Uh, obviously, there's no intent uh, to run to win, but it's an intent to go ahead and shift the discussion and the debates uh, to the left. You know, we all talk about uh, people are, you know, want to be at the center, uh, but the center today has been shifted to the right. So when people talk about being at the center, they're really right of center. Mm -hmm. And so we want to shift that back to uh, the center is the center with the liberals on one side and the conservatives on the other. Okay, so now, uh, (laughs) Senator Gravel, you mentioned um, uh, David and Ben, and I forget the name of the third one, but these are three teenagers who live in New York who, what, they just discovered you they, how, they, and they contacted you? I, I'm, I'm really curious about how this came about. Well, they, they discovered me on the, on the web. Uh-huh. Uh, a chat, uh, I forget the name of the, but it was a chat group. And, uh, and uh, David called me and said, uh, Senator, uh, we would like you to run for president. And I said, do you have any idea how old I am? <laughs> and he says, well, that, that doesn't matter. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course it does matter. <laughs> and so it was only by him outlining the research that they had done on me and on Telsey Gabbard, who I really support, uh, that they, that they persuaded me. And the key of persuasion was their support for the creation of a legislature of the people. Hmm. Okay. I like that. So so they took over your Twitter account and, and you decided to work with them to launch a campaign, which is really aimed at getting you on the debate stage. I mean, that's the big goal here, right? To get you on that debate stage yes, with the other candidates. Yeah, yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. It's the, the real goal is to get me in the debates. And it's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a real cutoff on the, uh, which I think is a somewhat unfair, uh, to cut it off, uh, and but we have to get sixty-five thousand uh, donors from twenty different states, mm-hmm. or have one percent in the polls. Well, I don't see one percent in the polls as realistic, <clears throat> and but but there is a chance. <clears throat> excuse me, there is a chance that uh, that they could raise the. I think right now they got over twelve thousand. Uh, donors wow. uh, to the tune of about $44,000. Okay, so that's a start. So people can go to micravel.org and donate. And of course, you have an Act Blue page um, where I, I love the amounts you have here $1, $2, $4.20, <laughs> 5, 10, or pick your own amount. Um, uh, the 420, obviously, um, a, uh, a nod to the time you've spent working in the cannabis industry. Um, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, so I'm guessing these kids put this together. Uh, d- did you know that 420 was one of the amounts they put in the Act Blue page? No, no, not at all. <laughs> this is news to me. I, I have not followed them that closely. I, they gave me veto power on whatever they're doing. Uh, and of course, I uh, gave them the Twitter account, which I never used, uh-huh. uh, and and that's what's propagating uh, the the website. But I, I just have confidence in uh, what they're do- what they're how they're doing it and what they're doing. Uh, and there's I, I don't intend to meddle into their tactics. They came here. Two of them came here for the weekend. Oh, nice! And we we did a shoot for. Uh, uh, HBO News and uh, another shoot for a person who wants to present something to Netflix. So it, it was a busy weekend, but it also gave me the opportunity to meet Henry and Ben first, uh, firsthand and discuss with them the the course of the campaign. 
D- David uh, was uh, had, had a condition where he had to go to the hospital oh, no. for a couple of days. But uh, what what we'll do is once they're out of school and they're full, well, they're full time in school right now. But once they're out of school, they'll be just full time, and uh, they'll come back out and we'll do some uh, planning and see how what our chances are of getting the sixty five thousand uh, by the deadline. I and love it. If they're I... successful, fine. If not. If they're not successful, then we'll donate the money to charities, various organizations. I, I love it. And in fact, on, on your website, it does say that at the end, any money left over will go to um, uh, all, all leftover funds will be donated to get clean water for Flint, Michigan, which I think is a pretty good goal. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a travesty that um, uh, Flint is still dealing with that disgusting water there. When you say the name Senator Mike Gravel, the first thing that most people who are familiar with your history think of is the Pentagon Papers. And I'm wondering if you see any kind of correlation between the importance of the Pentagon Papers back in 1971 and perhaps uh, the Mueller report today. Yes, very much so. In fact, it, it, it continues to be ridiculous that the secrecy pattern of people in government is is far too extreme. There's no reason why the Mueller report in its entirety should be transferred to a public domain uh, or certainly given to Congress. But uh, but here again, you have a government official who's going to redact it. Well, what's the purpose of redaction? This is uh, this is information that was acquired via a a special. Uh, person uh, to to go ahead and investigate, uh, and that was paid for by tax dollars, uh, what is there that should be denied the American public? Here again, it's the culpability of, of pe- bureaucrats who fancy themselves far superior uh, to the needs of the American people, and that is for the people to know what's going on in their government so that they can react to that uh, situation. So, yes, that's exactly what happened with the Pentagon Papers. Uh, here in McNamara did a study as to how we got into uh, Vietnam. And after the study was complete, you read it and top secret and hidden away. Now, if it was important for the Secretary of State to know how we got into Vietnam, it was a thousand times more important for the American people to know how we got into Vietnam. And so th- this secrecy continues to plague our democracies, and uh, and until we can get the people in power to make laws to limit this secrecy by government, and of course that's why I'm so supportive of, uh, of WikiLeaks hmm. uh, for what they did in revealing information that rightly the people should know about. Sure. So, so the parallel I think is 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 accurate uh, and unfortunate. Can I go back to um, when when Daniel Ellsberg approached you about the the Pentagon Papers? He was obviously uh, going afoul of the law. He was doing something that was against the rules, um, trying to get them published. Uh, but I guess he realized before he get them published, he needed somebody to read them into the record. And from what I understand, he went around to Congress trying to find somebody, and Mike Gravel was the one who stepped up. How did that come about? Was that a hard decision to make, or did you say, absolutely, I want to do this? Well, it was it was an instantaneous decision, and it was not hard to make. Hmm. When I was 23 years old, I was, in the adju- I was an adjutant for the Communications Intelligence Service. I could classify and declassify. And so now we move ahead. I'm 42 years old. I'm a United States senator, and the papers are sent over to the Senate by uh, the president, Richard Nixon, and they're put under guard, and a member could go in and read the papers, but could not take any notes. So it went from the sublime to the ridiculous. And so when I got a call from Ellsberg, uh, it was instantaneous. Yes, I'd be delighted to read the papers as part of my filibuster. And so we negotiated over the next couple of weeks to get the papers into my possession, and then I proceeded to release them, not on the floor because uh, I had been thwarted by the Republicans in that regard, but I was the chairman of the buildings and grounds. Now, mind you, I was a freshman. Hmm. So I was chairman of buildings and grounds. And so using a precedent of the House Un-Amer- Un-American Activities Committee, 
I called a hearing uh, late at night, and uh, and and a person came to testify and uh, asked for a federal building in his district. And I said, well, I'd like to give you a federal building, but uh, we we don't have the money to do that. And the reason we don't have the money because we're in Southeast Asia. And let me read to you how we got there. (laughs) And I proceeded to read the Pentagon Papers. (laughs) Wow. And how long did that go for? I went for about an hour and a half, two hours. And and I'm dyslexic, so there's oh, wow. no way I could read all the papers in a reasonable period of time. And so I, I broke down emotionally. I hadn't slept for three or four days. And uh, and I was really afraid. I didn't realize what was going to happen to me, whether I'd be expulsed or prosecuted or what have you. Right. And so I, I broke down, and then I eventually got control of my staff assistant uh, said, well, Senator, why don't you drop it in the record? And then that sobered me up real quick. And so what it is, I'm the only person there on the committee. So I asked unanimous consent (laughs) to place all these papers in the record of the subcommittee. And hearing no objections, I slammed the gavel and so ordered. And that's how the papers got into the Senate records of the United States Senate. Wow. And then, of course, after that, uh, I wanted to publish them because you see what happened with the Supreme Court decision of the same day that said that uh, the newspapers, the government could not stop the papers from printing uh, with prior restraint. But the Supreme Court did say that if the newspapers did print, then, of course, uh, they would be they'd be subject to prosecution. Now, the newspapers, after that reporting, did not print anymore. They had already printed some stuff, and they were at risk for that, and so they chose not to not to poke the government in the eye any further. Uh, now that left a dilemma because the, what they what they had published thus far was not nearly enough uh, of the Pentagon Papers. So I was able to go to Beacon Press, the only publication arm. Uh, of the of the Unitarian Church, and the only one in the entire United States that was prepared to publish all of the papers, and so th- they did. And of course, Beacon Press, myself, and Daniel Ellsberg were all prosecuted by the Nixon administration uh, under the Secrecy Act. Now, in my case, uh, they, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that under the speech and debate the clause of the Constitution, I could release what I did. But however, when I went to the private sector to publish the papers, that I was at risk also. And so that issue went all the way to the Supreme Court, and, uh, and we lost. We won uh, that any member of Congress could release whatever uh, he or she felt the American public should know, and they could not be uh, touched in any regard. Wow. But with respect to publishing beyond the Congress, that's a whole other matter. Mm-hmm. And Nixon could have put, uh, in, could have indicted us, invited, indicted me and uh, the Beacon Press and what have you. But he was on his way to a big victory uh, in re-election, and also. Uh, he was well aware of the beginnings of the criminality of Watergate, which he was deeply involved in. So, uh, so are, we're speaking with Senator Mike Ravel. I'm honored uh, that you're on the show today. Thank you so much for 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 all you've done and for for being here today and running to help. I think, pull the rest of the Democratic field to the left, um, something that I think Bernie Sanders effectively did four years ago. I'm wondering, um, Senator Gravel, if, if you would weigh in on some of the other candidates. Are, I mean, you've, you, you even said to us that you're not running with the intention of becoming president, um, but to get, you know, to, to, to open the debate, to get some of these issues out there. Among the field of those candidates who've already declared or are thinking of declaring, are there any that you support? Are there any that you think are better than yes. others? For, you know, well, first and foremost, I support Tulsi Gabbard in her quest for president, or I hope she's selected for vice president if she doesn't make the presidency. Uh, I obviously would support Bernie Sanders. I contributed to him in the last 
go around. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, Senator Warren mm-hmm. of Massachusetts, uh, I think that she has some very specific good solutions to problems. Senator Gravel, you've staked out a very progressive platform. I'm with you on it. I'm uh, also a Bernie Sanders supporter, Elizabeth Warren. I think that uh, th- this country has moved in a progressive direction. And and someone in the chat room had an interesting point a few minutes ago. He said, pointing to what happened in Israel, where Netanyahu, again, unbelievably won a fifth term. Um, this is what happens when you put up a centrist against a right winger. I think in, here in, in America, and especially the young people, are thirsting or hungering for uh, progressive values. The, all the things that Bernie Sanders advocated four years ago that we were told was pie in the sky, Medicare for all, tuition-free college and university, um, uh, um, you know, $15 an hour minimum wage, all the things that, that you're talking about as well, this is the direction the country is going in. But uh, you mentioned Obama a few minutes ago. And d- did you hear his comments of the circular firing squad that we can't be too progressive? Did Obama say that? Oh, you didn't hear it. Oh, uh, hold on. I'm, I'm going to... No. Here, it's, it's a 25-second clip. This is Barack Obama. One of the things I do worry about sometimes is a certain kind of rigidity where we say, ah, I'm sorry, this is how it's going to be, and then we start sometimes creating what's called a uh, circular firing squad. You start shooting at your allies because one of them is straying from... Purity on the issues. Yeah, so that's what he said. Boy, it's it, that's well, that's so typical of Obama. Mm-hmm. That, here, the only thing he's ever going to be known for in history as a legacy is getting a black person elected president. Right. The rest of his presidency was just an abomination, uh, and and so this does not surprise me. But here again, what what he's saying is, don't do what the Republicans have done very successfully, and that is moving the American public to the right. The way you move people right or left is you put forth your proposals and, and you don't water them down like the uh, Obama health care. When, when the Obama health care came out of the committee in the House way back when, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't even have an option of uh, people making a decision for uh, health care for all. Right. It's just assumed that you couldn't get that uh, get that done. Well, that's a false assumption because what you got is something that's a subsidy uh, to the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. That's what that's what Obamacare is all about. Yep. And so if you want uh, public uh, if you want health care for all, just go do it. Yeah, and, and-, and if you lose you will move the people over to that persuasion and you'll win the next time. Right. And um, Bernie Sanders introduced uh, his new Medicare for all legislation. So and, and 14 others, including most of the other um, Democratic candidates, all co-sponsored it right away. Well, it, it just goes to show you what Obama is doing with his statements right now is the damage, the same damage he did the last time by setting it up so Trump could win. Uh, Obama ought to to go get his uh, 60-some-odd million-dollar book deal uh, and and just retire from making these comments, which are injurious to the public interest, as I see it. Yeah, I agree. But but now, in in truth... uh, let me let me just point out something that most people don't don't touch on uh, other than the the issue of nuclear. And this started under Obama. The government is spending one point seven trillion dollars on refurbishing our nuclear arsenal. Yeah. Now, like I say, this started under Obama is continuing now. Well, what does that mean? Uh, that means that we are going to have more nuclear weapons and the delivery systems will all be refurnished. There'll be the cruise missiles, the silos, the uh, submarines, uh, all of that. We have the ability under present restraint, which is Trump is going to remove, that is to point our nuclear weapons at seven, uh, take 700 of our nuclear weapons and point them at our potential adversaries. Yeah. Now, what you have to understand is that uh, nobody can use these weapons. 
and I really mean that. Right, no, think. of course. It, it, nobody can use these weapons because if you do, it would trigger a nuclear winter and we're all going to die. So what is the point of, of having these weapons if you can't use them? And so you get the insanity of our existing military and political leaders that are toying with the possibility of a first strike. The first strike, the second strike, here, if, if somebody's unloaded on us, you know, saying, well, we have our nukes, we can unload on them. Well, no, we don't need to unload on them. We're all going to die. Anybody who does a strike is going to trigger a nuclear winter. And so this is the insanity of our leadership, and the people can't do anything about it because the leadership can't even do anything about it. There's no way you can overcome the military-industrial complex in Wall Street under our present scenario. That's the reason why I want to empower the people to be able to make laws, because right now lawmaking is, is a monopoly by government. Yep. Now, if you empower the people to make laws, i got to tell you, you're going to see a much different agenda enacted into law because the people are not good. Here, if you ask the people, do you want any more nuclear devices? Obviously, that would fail. Absolutely. Senator Mike Ravel in conversation here on the broadcast with me, I'm Nicole Sandler. If you want to help Mike Ravel get on that debate stage, you can go to mikegravel.org and make a donation of any amount. Time now for a quick break. We'll come back on the other side with the latest edition of the Green News Report from Brad Friedman, Desi Doyen, and the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Uh, Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of the Nicole Sandler Show, filling in today for Brad and Desi. But have no fear. It is Thursday and time for a new Green News Report. And, of course, Brad and Desi left one for us. So with no further ado, take it away, Brad and Desi. It's Thursday, July 11, 2019. The storm that could become the year's first hurricane to hit the U.S. appears to be bearing down on the Gulf Coast tonight. New Orleans braces for extreme rain and dangerous flooding. FEMA warns it's understaffed as hurricane season gets underway. Climate activist Tom Steyer jumps into crowded 2020 presidential race. Plus... Yes, might have gotten away with it too. It wasn't for these blasted kids. World's most powerful oil cartel is afraid of teen climate activists. You blasted kids. Why didn't you mind your own business? All of those stories and more... Straight ahead from Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I mean, for Andrew Wheeler and Trump to say that they're leaders in protecting the environment, it's sort of like the cookie monster saying that he's a leader in vegetables. Cookie! Um, 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 it's um, like Saturday morning um, cartoons. Um, this is your um, Green News Report. Ah, bye-bye. Okay, Desi Doyen, I hope I'm uh, worrying for nothing, but I am very, very concerned about what we could be looking at in New Orleans over the next few days. Yes, as we go to air, the city of New Orleans is bracing for a second punch of extreme weather after a torrential deluge of six inches an hour triggered widespread flooding on Wednesday on top of ongoing inland flooding from this spring's Mississippi River floods. A hurricane watch has been issued for Louisiana as developing tropical storm Barry bears down on the Gulf Coast, forecast to deliver another foot of rain and as much 
just five feet of storm surge, posing an unprecedented test to the city's levee system, and that could overwhelm it. So if we add all of this up, we are looking at uh, the, the flooding from the spring floods. We're looking at this huge deluge earlier in the week three or four or five feet of storm surge and another 18 inches of rain that all could happen add up to some 20 feet of flooding, which is the height of the existing levees right now, 20 feet protecting New Orleans. Which is why New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell urged vigilance. It is still too soon to tell what the impact will be. But it is never too early to prepare. These are called compound flooding events that occur when storm surge from the ocean at the coast slams up against river flooding from inland areas, preventing water from draining anywhere, like in Hurricane Harvey. Now, I hate to say it, but at this point, kind of hope that hurricane blows to the west towards Texas. Sorry, Texas, but with what we're looking at in New Orleans, this could be very disturbing if it hits there. And climate scientists do project that we'll see more frequent compound flood events because of man-made climate change. And worse, FEMA staff are already stretched thin, scattered across the Midwest dealing with the historic Mississippi River flooding and areas still recovering from last year's hurricane. Acting FEMA Director Peter Gaynor told a House committee hearing in late June that the disaster agency is significantly understaffed as hurricane season gets underway. They're probably short uh, a few thousand uh, employees. Oh, so this is going very, very well. Buckle up, New Orleans. In politics, billionaire Tom Steyer, former hedge fund manager turned climate and impeachment activist, has entered the crowded field for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, calling for ending the influence of corporations in politics. If you give them the unlimited ability to participate in politics, it will skew everything because they only care about profits. You know, you look at climate change. That is people who are saying we'd rather make money than save the world. Speaking of saving the world, OPEC, the powerful Middle East oil cartel, is afraid that youth climate activists are succeeding at turning public opinion against the oil industry. Oh, poor OPEC. At a recent meeting, OPEC's secretary general complained that student climate protesters like Swedish teen Greta Thunberg are, quote, perhaps the greatest threat to our industry going forward. (laughs) He said colleagues are complaining that their children are asking them about the future because, quote, they see their peers on the street campaigning against this industry. That attitude shift has also reached the London Stock Exchange, which is changing how it labels energy companies. No longer will fossil fuels be called oil and gas producers. Now they'll be labeled non-renewable energy. The change is designed to differentiate heavily polluting energy companies from clean, renewable energy companies. Some analysts have complained that the change risks stigmatizing the fossil fuel industry among investors. Oh, that poor fossil fuel industry. I love that the most powerful industry in the world is terrified of being brought down by a little girl. Mm-hmm. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Blasted meddling kids. Inside that epic Green News report was the news that Tom Steyer has officially thrown his hat into the 2020 presidential ring. He said that he's planning on putting $100 million of his own dollars into the race. Seriously? He even has a Facebook ad up asking for donations to his cause. Of the more than 3,500 comments on the post, I've yet to come across one that wasn't a variation of, hell no. When I first heard of Tom Steyer, it was in the context of his founding of his next-gen climate action, an organization devoted to tackling climate change, and he had the money to do so. Then he started up Need to Impeach, which I thought was a massive waste of money and a way to stroke his ego and build his email list. 
but now that he's jumped into the presidential race, I'm kind of pissed. Think about all the good he could do with $100 million. Feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, or perhaps funding a progressive media infrastructure to help elevate the progressive voices who've been virtually banished from the public airwaves. But no, Tom Steyer is running a quixotic presidential race that he will lose. Jamel Bowie has a great op-ed in today's New York Times that I'll take a few moments to share with you. It reads, I am pointedly trying not to make predictions about the presidential race, but I think I can say with confidence that Tom Steyer, a hedge fund billionaire who announced this week that he too was running for president, will not be the Democratic nominee. It took years of political cultivation and an astute strategy for our sitting president to win a major party nomination as a wealthy outsider. Beginning in 2011, Donald Trump forged an emotional connection with Republican voters, channeling their partisan rage into a racist smear campaign against President Barack Obama. Trump was a mainstay on Fox News and used his popular Twitter account to attack the Obama administration and the president personally. He had a real following with rank-and-file Republicans, enough so that he was at or near the top of the field in early polling for the 2012 Republican primaries. He didn't run, but he was influential enough to make his a coveted endorsement, which he gave to Mitt Romney in a televised event ahead of the Nevada primary. It's my real honor, real honor to endorse Mitt Romney, Trump said. He's smart. He's sharp. He's not going to let bad things continue to happen to this country we all love. Romney was similarly effusive. Quote, there are some things in life you just can't imagine happening in your life. This is one of them. Being in Donald Trump's magnificent hotel and having his endorsement is a delight. When Trump finally ran for president in 2015, he rejected the Republican establishment and its priorities, running to the left on social spending and sharply to the right on immigration and racial inclusion. This put him closer to the views of ordinary Republican voters and quickly gave him a decisive lead in the race, which he would never relinquish. His campaign changed the shapes of both parties, drawing blue-collar whites to the Republicans and pushing college-educated whites toward the Democrats. Steyer has none of this. His advocacy campaigns on impeachment and the environment have not been enough to build a connection with ordinary Democratic voters. He is a prominent donor, but not a major force among the Democratic grassroots. And while there is tension between the Democratic base and the legislative leadership, there's no issue that Steyer could exploit the way Trump did with immigration. Trump had something else that Steyer lacks, a direct appeal to identity. He ran as the champion of Americans' petite bourgeois, its police officers, small business owners, and white blue-collar workers. There's no equivalent appeal on the left for Steyer to embrace, no hyper-aggrieved group of Democratic voters, no demographic that doesn't already have a credible representative in the race. Steyer has no constituency other than himself. He just has money and he intends to spend it. He has already pledged to spend $100 million on his campaign, more than the combined second-quarter fundraising of Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. If he has a strategy, it's to buy his way onto the debate stage and then into a top spot in the polls. For someone who claims to care about the fate of the country, it's a waste. If Steyer actually wants to influence politics and specifically to beat Donald Trump, there are many more worthwhile things he could do with his money. Someone else I know just said that. Anyway, back to the op-ed. With $100 million, Ben Mathis Lilly at Slate Magazine estimates Steyer could pay fines and restore voting rights for up to 70,000 Floridians, which would have a real impact on the 2020 race. As it happens, I also have a few ideas for how Steyer could spend his cash in more constructive ways. Among all adults, a recent survey done for the Washington Post shows Donald Trump loses in head-to-head matchups with most of his competitors. But among registered voters, he's either virtually tied or ahead of everyone other than the former vice president, Joe Biden. The difference is easy to explain. Compared with all adults and especially non-voters, registered voters are whiter, wealthier, and more likely to have steady employment and a permanent address. They are, in other words, more Republican than the public at large. If Democrats could close the gap between the two groups, if they could bring more non-voters or new voters into the process, they'd have a better shot at beating Trump in 2020. 
It's true that Steyer already has an organization, Next Generation, partially devoted to expanding the electorate. Still, instead of running a quixotic campaign for the Democratic nomination, he could invest his spare cash in a new national voter registration effort, aimed perhaps at the millions of Americans who will turn 18 between now and November of next year, as well as the millions of young voters who didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election, even if they were eligible. Research suggests that there is more bang for your organizing buck in targeting new adults for voter registration. This would do more to help Democrats next year than a Tom Steyer presidential campaign. What's more, it could be coupled with an effort to bolster the work that helped Democrats win big in 2017 and 2018, including a landslide victory in the Virginia statewide elections and a surprise conquest in Alabama. Groups like New Virginia Majority and Black Voters Matter worked with local activists to register voters and build powerful turnout operations. A concerted effort to mobilize voters of color might, by itself, be enough to send Trump back to Fifth Avenue. It is not too late for Steyer to think about doing that instead of mounting a campaign. Of course, that may not be glamorous enough for someone who wants to be president, in which case Steyer could instead spend his millions on ballot initiatives to expand democracy and access. Activists in Michigan and Florida have already used this process to push back against gerrymandering and reverse felon disenfranchisement. Steyer himself embraced the approach in California with Next Generation, where he spent millions to pass a cigarette tax and to block an effort to repeal the law that allowed cap-and-trade in the state. Why not go further and back reform in other states that allow initiative and referendum? Take action to level the playing field and reshape the structure of American politics. It may not have the thrill or the visibility of a presidential run, but it would be infinitely more useful to liberal politics. If nothing else, Steyer could use his wealth to assist down-ballot candidates, from the House and Senate to state legislative districts. Their success will be more consequential for future progressive gains than any possible presidential campaign. With a Senate majority, Democrats would actually have a chance at meaningful action on the climate, one of Steyer's principal concerns, while state house and governorship wins are the direct path to breaking extreme partisan gerrymandering. Steyer also doesn't have to wait until 2020 to make an impact. The Virginia General Assembly is up for grabs in this year's state legislative elections. If Democrats win, they'll have a trifecta for the first time in a generation, a rare chance to put progressive policy into action. The Democratic Party doesn't need another presidential candidate. It's a waste of resources, another example of liberal America's disastrous preoccupation with executive office at the expense of the rest of our federal system, which spreads power across different institutions, offices, and levels of government. If there is going to be a progressive renewal in American politics, it won't start in the White House. It will start from the bottom up, built from movements centered on identity, injustice, and material deprivation, ordinary people organizing themselves to fight for a better, more humane society. Progressives need the Tom Steyers of the world to back those efforts, not to play act as a populist with a vanity campaign. Again, those are the brilliant words of Jamel Bowie writing in today's New York Times. Tom Steyer, we welcome you with folded arms. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you for being with me today. Thanks also to Mike Ravel, Senator Mike Ravel, for his wonderful insights and wisdom and his stance in fighting for world peace. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, in for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen, and I'll be back again tomorrow for another edition of The Bradcast. Oh